And open your Bibles, please, to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. We'll return to our series on Abraham and Sarah uh, following Easter, but uh, we'll I uh, didn't want to jump back in after the Mission Conference series. This sort of ties in with that as well. Just a couple things. By the way, forgiving, you may note on the back of your bulletin, uh, it's a new world we're in, but you can you can give your faith promise here, or you can commit your faith promise or giving there, just so you know. Uh, those things are there. Also, the service for Charles Haley will be in the sanctuary on uh, on Wednesday at 11. Make note of that. And then for the baptism today, of course, uh, we want to report to uh, uh, Nathan and Kasha uh, our support from this service. So I ask you this question that we'll ask at 11. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting Nathan and Kasha in the Christian nurture of Aaron and Blake? Do you? All right. I will tell them that you said that. All right. Zechariah 9, verse 9, this is the word of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. And join me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so glad this morning that we have your word that stands forever before us. So, Father, we'd ask even now for your Holy Spirit's help to grasp what your word's saying. Father, to apply it to the way we think. Father, the way we live, to what we say, what we do, that Jesus Christ, our King, might be praised. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The tragic shootings in Boulder and in Atlanta, a 30% increase in the murder rate in the United States in 2020. The hateful rhetoric that's exchanged across our nation Gender confusion and pronoun perplexity, uh, sexual preoccupation, soaring suicide rates, the list could go on and on and on. And all these are problems that we face today as a nation. But as we talk about these, if you look closely, those are problems, but maybe they're really just symptoms of the real issues that face our nation today. Uh, and I want to review something that uh, Bob DeMoss wrote well over a decade ago. Back then, he said these were the four issues at the root of what all the problems were of American teenagers in those days. Uh, but my calculation, those teenagers are now in their 30s, uh, and, uh, uh, and still the issues are issues that we face, that we battle. So I want the four fixed firmly in our minds. They are biblical illiteracy. Absolute truth, choices have consequences, and lack of vision. And the question you might have is, what does that have to do with Zechariah's prediction of King Jesus' triumphant entry and his ultimate reign? I mean, just what do those four issues have to do with Jesus riding in Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, let's, let's go to the text and see. First, biblical illiteracy. 
and really, this is the this is the single biggest issue facing the church today. Uh, it stands at the root of the other three issues we're speaking about. Uh, people do not know what the Bible says. So where do we get that from this passage? We'll look again at the first, first part of verse 1. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the fall of the donkey. Now, have you ever wondered... What went wrong that week in Jerusalem? The people had the greatest cause for celebration in the world. Your, your king is coming to you. They rejoice. They shout Hosanna, meaning Lord save. Messianic fevers is raging. But then about 100 hours or so later, a mob crowd is stirred into a, a wild frenzy, and they're shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, what went wrong? I mean, these people clearly, uh, it would seem, misunderstood what Jesus was about. And that's a problem that's rooted in biblical illiteracy. They simply do not know what the Bible says. They zero in on a few hand-picked Old Testament passages about Messiah, and they neglect the rest. And all the way when Jesus, their expected king, arrives in Jerusalem, they miss it just like they missed him in Bethlehem. How that happened? I want to look at a few Old Testament passage references that point to Jesus as the coming King. So it's a little bit of Bible survey, and I know some people need to say, you know, I'm going to just shut him down for a minute, and give your mind a rest, because you might be thinking this just doesn't interest me. Now let me just say very lovingly, if that's the case, that's precisely the problem. All right, we do not take the time to learn what we need to learn what we need to know. We pick and choose the information that we take in from the Bible like we're at Moe's or Chipotle's or Kurtz or Loretta's. You know, a little of this and a little of that and never any of that. All right? Uh, we only want to know what's going to be on the test. What's the bare minimum that I have to know? And that may be why we have trouble making good evaluations, good assessments of where our culture is headed. Uh, we have trouble making good decisions. We're not working with a complete database. You can only get information out of a computer that someone's put into that computer. We can only get out of our minds what's been put into our minds. We need to know what the Bible says, what all of God's Word says, what Paul calls the whole counsel of God. See, apart from knowing God's words, there's a, there's a vacuum of values and of standards. We have no in-house guide. And taken as a whole, the entire Old Testament points to the coming of King Jesus. For example, Genesis 49, the context is that Jacob is on his deathbed and he's given a blessing to each of his 12 sons that's, that's the appropriate blessing for them. So we're in about the 19th century B.C., before Christ. And when Jacob blesses his fourth son, Judah, he says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So who has a scepter? A king does. Who has the obedience of peoples? A king. 
And so from this came the original expectation uh, of a king who would one day come from the tribe of Judah. And then verse 11, speaking of the, the coming king, says this, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Keep in mind there, you've got the mentions of words like donkey, garments, wine, uh, blood. And then 400 years goes by, we're in Numbers 24, and it's the middle of that remarkable prophecy by the pagan prophet Balaam. And he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So you've got the scepter for a king. You've got dominion over the peoples. And so they have that expectation of a king. And in time, Saul became the first king. And then David became the perfect type of king for his people. And their expectation of Messiah was that he would be the true son of David. When David's actual son becomes king, Solomon... Listen to the account of his coronation and say if any of this sounds familiar, based on what we've already read this morning. This is the 10th century before Jesus. It's from 1 Kings 1. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Obviously, great joy. The king is coming. Excitement. And what's he riding on? He's riding a mule. He's riding the same as a donkey. See, a donkey was a king's travel mode when, when he came in triumph and in peace. A horse stood for warfare. Uh, Solomon rides into town on that donkey with shouts of great joy coming from the people. Then 200 years later, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 63, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, Mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Again, the same words keep occurring. Jeremiah, a hundred years after that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You see the key words that run through all this. Donkey, salvation, righteousness, king. Now add all that to the words of Zechariah a hundred years later. And they're waiting for this king of Israel. And they will wait for 500 more years. Watching, waiting, expecting, hoping. The expectations are clear. God over the centuries had painstakingly told them of the coming king. And what his business would be. He told them what to look for. He brought in Isaiah 53. He'd even drawn up a, a picture of it with Solomon. 
They've got a roadmap with, with pictures along the way to find their king. And they missed him. Now today we have the rest of the story. We have the, the Bible. We have the New Testament, which completes the picture. Yet people today still miss the truth of who Jesus is. And why is that? It's biblical illiteracy. They simply do not know God's word. They don't know of God's offer of eternal life and God's forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. And then God's instructions for how to live uh, grace-fueled, holy lives. People do not want to take the time or they prefer that nothing challenges their own belief system, their own so-called truth. People want to live lives on their own terms. See, but the Bible brings us face to face with God's claims of who he is and what he's done for us at the cross through Jesus Christ. The Bible confronts us with our sin and with our need of a savior. Brings us to the second issue, absolute truth. Now, we talked about this just a few weeks ago. Um, our students are told that there is none. They're told there's no corner on the market on truth. That all truth claims are equally valid, which is impossible. People are told there are many ways to Jesus. That Easter people want to eat their peeps and the Reese's eggs and hunt for eggs. But they don't know why. At the end of this world comes the, the claim of absolute truth. Again, verse 9, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. There is a king who comes and he brings absolute truth. And kings come with the authority to enforce their truth. Now, authority is not a popular word today. People struggle with the idea of really about anybody being in charge. I mean, we don't live in a monarchy. We, weren't, we didn't grow up with that. Americans have a, a tough time with thinking anybody is in authority. You see, kings and queens, if you've got that job, you don't have to answer to people. You reign, all right? Uh, they can do what they want. And if we don't like what a president does, we just don't reelect them. So, so how do we approach people with the absolute truth? That Jesus is king. Well, notice it says that he's righteous, which tells us there's a standard of some sort to follow. There's right and there's wrong. There are moral absolutes, moral choices to be made. But if we watch how Jesus engages people, he does not confront them and say, here are the rules. Follow them. Uh, no, he meets people where they are. He meets hurting people. He meets the outcast. Uh, he, he, he shows them compassion. Whether it's the woman at the well or Zacchaeus up in a tree uh, or Nicodemus who comes at night and has one of the great minds in Israel, the woman who touched his clothes to be healed or the, the, the young widow who's, who's with the sick child who just asked for crumbs, from underneath the table. Jesus always shows winsome love. He always builds trust. I mean, he's a totally different kind of king than the world's ever seen because he's a king who's truly willing to die for his people, for his people who do not measure up to his standard of righteousness. 
See, that's the problem. Salvation implies that people fall short of the established standard and need to be saved. Everybody needs what Jesus offers. So implicit in the claim there's a king is that we do have to answer to a king. Uh, we do, we found this nation on the fact that our idea, the concept that God is the king, the giver of absolute truth, the one who has set the standard for righteous behavior. Franciaca describes the decline of absolute truth this way. He said around 1900, biblical morality was still the standard. And a person would say, certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And I know why. And then came the 60s and the 70s, when immorality became rampant. The idea was still, certain things are right, and certain things are wrong, but I don't care. And then we've today reaped the fruit of what we've sown. There's a, that is, there's no such thing as right or wrong. You know, whatever works for you. So people want to pursue their own agenda. In Jerusalem, people wanted a king. But this king did not come with their agenda, which was political freedom. You see, he came with something better. He came with salvation, with spiritual freedom. And by coming, by maintaining righteousness, by offering salvation, he is saying you need to be saved from something. And what is that something? That's our penalty for sin. People did not want to hear that in the first century. People do not want to hear it in the 21st century today. The great need that all Americans have, in fact, and it's a global need, is salvation from sin that comes from faith through Jesus Christ. The king came to die for sinners, to die for all of us who do not measure up. That's absolute truth. And this king said, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there's no other way. And that's absolute truth. I realize it's not popular to say that, but it's absolute truth. The Jewish leaders rejected that truth then, and they do today. Any Jew who rejects Jesus is lost. So too, any Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, New Ager, Humanist, Mormonist, Mormon, Baha'i, Secularist, they're all lost. All of them. And that is absolute truth. It's startling. And yes, it's tragic for those who reject Jesus. But it's truth. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and Him only. So having been saved, how, how do we live? Uh, that's why we need a guide for our lives. And he gives us his word, absolute truth. And we have morals and values. We've got to know what this book says and to live it. It's not a, a rule book intended to turn us into legalists with a long list of do this and don't do this. It is a guide book that shows us how to love. Now, why is that? Well, the third big issue is choices have consequences. People today are told, do whatever seems right to you. All of us are told to choose whatever is best for the individual without any regard to anybody else. 
It's explicit in advertisements. It's implicit with our, our leaders and celebrities as they live their lives. But it's bad advice. It's wrong. It's deadly. Proverbs 14, 12 makes it clear there is a way that seems right for a man, but its end is the way of death. So we base our decisions, our, our choices uh, on God's word, not our feelings, not our desires. I mean, study Jesus here. Look at the last part of verse 9. Behold, your king's coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. People very often want to do the popular thing, the end thing. I mean, we make many choices based on sometimes on peer pressure, doing what we think people want us to do. So Jesus made a choice. He deliberately rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was not an accident. It's not a lucky thing that it happened. He's deliberately imitating 1 Kings 1 and Zechariah 9. Now here's the thing. What would be the popular thing to have done? The popular thing to do would be to accept the crowd's hosanna and set up a kingdom. You know, he could have, he could have whipped the crowd into a, a frenzied mob on that Palm Sunday and he could have been crowned king of Israel before sundown. How would he do that? All he had to do was ride into town on a horse. That's all. And ride into town on that horse and ride straight up to the Roman barracks where the soldiers were. And it would have been clear declaration of war. The Romans would have gotten it. And the people would have. It had been the signal that he'd come to, for a military battle. And that's what the people wanted. I dare say that's what the disciples wanted. I mean, he was qualified. He was descended from David. He was wise. He was powerful. All his supporters were behind him. And while the immediate consequence of that choice would have brought political freedom from Rome to Israel and established an earthly kingdom of Israel, it would have meant that ultimately there would be no eternal salvation for his people. None. Only a temporary earthly kingdom. And as he will pray in Gethsemane just a few days later, not my will, but thy will be done. He was determined he was going to be obedient to his father at all costs. And that was the supreme cost, his life. With no greater love is a man than this, that he laid on his life for his friends. Friends, that's the magnificent love of God. The consequence of Jesus' choice is that he offers salvation to us. Friends, our choices always have consequences, and they're not all equal. When we make the choice to follow Christ, consequences come. And it may mean pain. Following Jesus may mean rejection or ridicule or death. It may mean doing the right thing when you don't even realize somebody's watching. And it'll attract somebody's attention and want to know why you did it. It may mean making a difference by sharing Christ with a friend so that they'll come to know Jesus. Choices have consequences. If my grass needs mows and I choose not to do it and it rains, guess what? It becomes an even harder task. 
If I choose to break the speed limit on Wander Highway, like some of you do, all right, and I get, I get caught, I might get fined. If you choose to have premarital sex in order to have temporary pleasure, your risk of STDs or AIDS or pregnancy and a long-term sense of being used by someone else will follow. Choosing to allow confused children against their parents' will to take body-altering hormones or have life-changing surgery when they're not even allowed to have their ears pierced without a signature from the parents, that has devastating consequences. Choosing to live according to God's Word brings joy and peace. Maybe God's choosing you to serve Him cross-culturally. That choice has consequences. We may soon be at a place in the United States where the choice of being a Christian has consequences like it does in so many other places in the world. So let's be clear here. Making the right choice does not bring immunity from trouble or conflict. But right choices always bring hope for tomorrow. As Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Which brings us to the fourth primary issue, and that is a lack of vision. If we do not know God's word, if we've decided there are no absolutes, if we believe our choices do not matter, then the idea of, of, of vision for our living is quickly gone. And it's simply replaced by, by, by trying to survive day by day without direction all the 25,000 or so days of our lives. There are times we, perhaps we look at the world and we just throw up our hands and we think nothing can be done. There's no future, no hope. I can't take it anymore. It's a natural response. We need a vision that something can be done. We need to see things as God intends them to be in contrast to the way things are. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. One day, this will be a reality. One day things will be different. One day all the battles will be over. And the already won victory will be evident. And King Jesus will rule the new heavens and the new earth. And people from all nations will be his people. And skin color will not matter around the throne of God. Friends, that's the Bible's vision for our future. And God calls us to get on board with his plans. He wants to see that we live in a world of, of billions of people. Our lives matter. They matter here in Chestnut Mountain. But the impact can be felt in London, in Bangkok, Berlin, Plovdiv, East Africa, India, in homes for street children in Manila, on college campuses in Athens, Atlanta, and Taiwan. See, we live between verses 9 and 10. Already King Jesus has come. Already we've received salvation. Not yet is verse 10 a complete reality that all people can see. But friends, it will be. It will be when Jesus comes. You know, when you turn 15, you get your learner's permit to learn how to drive. 
already you get to drive, but you've got limitations. You've got to have usually mom or dad with you. Uh, and uh, you, then you turn 16, you get a license, and you don't have to have them, but you can only have like one or two people with you, and you have time restrictions. And then you turn 18, and what happens? All those restrictions go away. You're allowed to enjoy all the privileges of driving. See, already we are enjoying many of the benefits of God's rule because Jesus, King Jesus came the first time. But we don't enjoy all the benefits all the time. Already King Jesus reigns. He is our King who, the, who, who comes for us. Not yet is it obvious to the world that Jesus reigns. Already Satan is defeated not yet is he cast into the eternal lake of fire. We need to live our lives with the daily reality that Jesus is king and with a vision to reach this world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got to tell the world what Zechariah told the world. Your king is coming to you. He's coming. God's word says it. And in a day in which we may be pessimistic sometimes about the future, Zechariah makes it clear, your king is coming to you. So what about us? What should we do? One is get to know the king. Uh, sometimes it may sound like a broken record. If you don't know what a broken record is, ask your parents. Uh, but, uh, but, but get into God's word. Read about Jesus, watch Jesus, see how he lives, see how he loves. See how he combines humility and power. Now, there's no better help for shaping our lives than reading the words of Jesus. And this whole book is the word of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, it better all be read, all right? Because it's all what Jesus says. Because the more we learn about him, I'm convinced the greater our trust in the king will grow. In a world that increasingly chafes under authority, Jesus, through his distinctively different life and his sacrificial death, has earned our trust. So listen to what he says. He is never, ever, never, ever wrong. Understand, this is absolute truth. There's not one truth for you and another competing truth for me. Rather, this book is absolute truth. And we can say that no other book is absolute truth. And given that we can trust the king's book is true, let the king guide our daily choices. Because again, they all have consequences. Learn from Jesus how choices have consequences. He constantly made choices for long-term good, not for the short-term. Jesus' choice is for us to lovingly do the right thing. But keep in mind that this choice to live and love others carries a steep price. And the cross bears that out. Finally, watch our vision. Fourth, watch our vision. We have a vision of what God wants us to be, wants us to do. How God wants to use us for His glory. Keep the big picture always of what God is doing. Pray. Seek to know our involvement in His plan. Now we we'll say finally this. If we submit our lives to Him, to His Word, to His truth, His choices, His vision, 
For some of you to say, love King Jesus. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. Contemplate His love. It's, 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 it's only logical to respond this way. And yes, to respond emotionally this way. And I would just say, if you've not yet received King Jesus as your Savior, please allow us to introduce you to Him today. In first century Judaism, Sunday's cries of Hosanna mean literally, save us, we pray, rang increasingly cheap and empty as that week led to the cross. What about our hosannas and our praise? Do we really mean it? Do we live like it? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for King Jesus that he came. Father, our heart grieves for the people that missed him in Bethlehem and then the people that missed him in his earthly ministry. Father, for people that miss him today. So, Father, we pray for anybody here or anybody uh, watching online that doesn't yet know King Jesus as saving Lord today, show them his love, show them the cross, show them what to do to be saved, we would pray. And then, Father, we thank you that Jesus is our King. Father, build our trust. Father, increase our love, we pray. Uh, We're grateful that we have a God to trust in your word. So, Father, help us to live by that word, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name.